Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In three, two, one... Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie East, and this, this is the Sunday Sunday. In today's episode, we take a look at the psychology of sports fans, the generative AI boom, and zombie viruses. But first, it was on this day in 1967 that Concorde, a joint British-French venture, and the world's first supersonic airliner was unveiled in Toulouse, France. Seven. It's that time again. No, not Christmas. Yep, that's right, with the World Cup in full swing, football madness is well and truly here. Whether or not you're a sports enthusiast, it's hard to deny the excitement of the game. And while not everyone can travel thousands of miles to Qatar this year, psychologists say there's good reason to tune into a match and support your team. Larry Olmsted's the author of a book all about sports fans, and according to him, mass sport events like the World Cup can have huge psychological benefits. Because fans get a lot more joy or upside mental health benefit from winning than they get downside from losing. And also over time, they remember the big wins or the big games more than the losses. So the upside of winning is greater than the downside of losing. Sports psychologists describe it to me as we sort of have a circuit breaker in our head. One said, you know, if sports fans didn't have coping mechanisms, there wouldn't be any sports fans. Humans are, by nature, social creatures. This makes the world's most popular sport a great opportunity to bond with others and find community. A big part of the mental health benefits that come from fandom come out of this sense of community, and you get that, win or lose. Dr. Daniel Wan is Professor of Psychology at Murray State University. According to his new research, fandom also has the ability to meet certain psychological needs. So first of all, one very powerful need that we have is the need to belong. If you are a fan of your local sports team or maybe a very popular sport, you're going to feel like you you fit in, like you're, you're a part of the in crowd. But at the same time, another powerful need that we have is the need for distinctiveness. We don't want to fit in and be just like everybody else. We want to be unique and special Mm -hmm. in some way. So what we also find is that fans, sure, they'll follow a local team, but they'll also perhaps follow a distant team or an unusual team to kind of give them that edge, just to be a little bit different from their friends. And although we have our favorite teams, we also love an underdog. Following an underdog, it's safer. So if I follow a team that's not supposed to win, and they don't win. In fact, you know, the, the odds came out the way they were supposed to be, and they, they lost this game. Well, then I can very easily say, well, you know, we were supposed to lose. We weren't supposed to win anyway. I, I'm, not, I'm not out anything in terms of my self-esteem or my ego. But if that team wins, if they pull off an upset and they're successful, how much sweeter is that victory? And the impact of victories and losses is far-reaching. 
They've done research that shows that if a local sport team is successful, that's really good news for the local politicians. Because if the local sports team is successful, the local fans are happy. And we love the status quo when we're happy. And if the status quo is the local politician, it actually shows that it gives them a couple of bumps in terms of their approval rating. We also know that it can have impacts on their economic uh, development for countries. So they have looked at the success of like World Cup and national uh, soccer and sports teams. It actually can impact the stock markets of those teams. Plus, individually, well, let's not kid ourselves. If a team suffers a terrible defeat in a, in a championship game, people aren't going out and spending money like they're happy. They're just, you know, staying in bed sad, don't want to go anywhere the next day. It, but if your team wins... All is right with the world, and so you're probably going to head out and spend a little bit more money than you would have. It has such powerful impacts across the board on what we do that, again, I don't think people usually understand. The reason that I suggest that people become sports fans is similar to the reason I would suggest that people become actively interested in any pastime. It brings with it advantages. It's a social activity. Going to feel connected to your friends. You're going to feel connected to your peers. You're going to feel connected to your university or your community. We've studied this so many times with sports fans. If you identify and you care about a local sport team, you have higher self esteem, you have lower levels of alienation, you have lower levels of loneliness, you feel like you fit in more with your community, your connections are stronger, they're greater. There are clear psychological well being advantages of caring about the local sport team. With COVID-19 dominating the news for almost three years, it's easy to forget the other infectious diseases that still cause us problems. Strep A has been making the headlines in recent weeks, and at the time of recording this episode, at least eight children in England and Wales have died with an invasive form of the bacterial infection. Most Strep A cases are relatively mild and cause scarlet fever with symptoms such as a sore throat and a rash, which can be routinely treated with antibiotics. However, the bacteria can sometimes get into the bloodstream or other parts of the body and become invasive and life-threatening. Because children were not mixing during during the pandemic, were not mixing as much as they had been previously, that means that they weren't able to generate uh, an immunity to these sorts of bacterial infections, which are common. This is Dr. Simon Clark. He's a microbiologist at the University of Reading, speaking with Sky News. So what you end up with is a situation where there is less uh, community immunity to infection and more transmission, and therefore the infection is that the bacteria is more able uh, to find people who are going to be susceptible to it. That's why you end up in the situation perhaps um, that we have. I should emphasise, though, it's a reasonable hypothesis, but it hasn't been proved. The last time we experienced high cases of strep A was in 2017. Then there were four deaths in children under the age of 10 between September and December. Health officials are advising people to be aware of the symptoms, but not to be overly concerned. This is Dr Colin Brown, Deputy Director of the UK Health and Safety Agency. So no, parents shouldn't be panicking. We see group A streptococcal infections every year. Uh, there's a large number of them that will get better on their own or with antibiotics. Products. The vast majority uh, will not develop into invasive group A streptococcal infections, but for those that do, 
we're asking parents to be on the lookout for warning signs and to seek medical advice where necessary. Here's Dr Simon Clark again explaining exactly what we all need to look out for. So initially the, the, the symptoms that people need to look out for are uh, perhaps tiredness, nausea, the sort of things that are fairly common uh, when you pick up an infection. Uh, within the next several hours um, of starting to develop a disease, um, somebody will probably get a rash, they may have uh, flushed cheeks, a swollen tongue. Really, the only way, though, of being sure that somebody has got group A strep infection is to take a swab from the back of their throat and to culture it in a laboratory. So these initial signals, while they're a good indicator, they're not proof and people should see their doctors. Still to come on the Sunday 7, the implications of the viral avatar creator Lenza AI and world leaders meet to tackle the plastic problem. If your social feed's currently full of AI-generated portraits of your friends, you are not alone. After adding a new avatar generation tool based on stable diffusion, the photo editing app Lenser AI went viral over the last few days with users sharing their AI-crafted avatars and its horrible misfires in stories and posts. Lenser utilises what is called generative artificial intelligence. Nina Schick is an expert in deep fakes, synthetic media, cyber security and the geopolitics of technology. And according to her, generative AI is on the verge of changing humanity. In the kind of last 12 to 6 months, this space is absolutely exploding. So whilst I started looking at it from a disinformation angle, I now understand that this is far more profound than just AI-generated disinformation. This, in my view, is a tipping point for human evolution. And I don't say that lightly, but I do think we're entering a new era in human evolution where everything we have thus far believed to be unique to human creativity or intelligence, at least the production process, can now be done by AI and at scale. So that's going to have really profound implications and consequences. Speaking with Luke Franks on the Welcome to the Multiverse podcast, Nina explained just how rapidly this technology could disrupt the status quo. In my view, up to 90% of all digital content will be generated by AI by 2025. And the models we are seeing coming out now are mastering every form of digital content, whether that is audio, video, text, or images. Now, some of those challenges are harder than others. So for instance, video is obviously one of the more difficult ones, but on text, image, and speech, I mean, the models are already out there. That challenge of using text to generate video is going to be cracked pretty soon to the extent where I think in the next three to five years it will be possible to generate a Hollywood length feature film using a consumer laptop and one of these tools. The next area I think is going to be really really disrupted I mean audio speech is uh, going to be music because right now it's already possible to like distill styles of music, sounds of music, people's voices and be able to generate not only speech but also music with AI. So the entire gamut of every type of digital content is now possible to generate with AI. While the tech world's largely celebrated the advancements of AI image and text generators this year, Lens has also reignited discussion over the ethics of creating images with models that have been trained using other people's original work. Apps like Lenser, Dali 2 and Midjourney are built by scraping millions of images from the web, then teaching algorithms to recognise patterns and generate new ones in the same style. 
That means the artists who upload their works to the internet may be unwittingly helping to train their algorithmic competitors. But if content's heading towards AI generation, what can artists do about it? Well, Nina shared this theory. I think where it should go is that artists or creators should be able to have their own style machines, which they license, right? Which would probably have to be secured on blockchain or some other kind of authentication technology so that not only can they create synthetic content, which can be authenticated as theirs, but now they have an avenue where they can actually license and open up their style for their fans to play with. And that's probably going to be the direction of interactive content, IP expansion in the future anyway, the way that we're heading, you're going to need much more content, we're going to need like immersive new worlds. And I think that AI will become a new medium for those who wish to see it as such as that can actually like empower artists to connect with their fans and create new work as well. Plastic is found everywhere. Even in the remote and seemingly pristine landscape of Antarctica, researchers have found microplastics in the water and ice. Lucy Waddles, an Oxford professor and an expert in deep sea biology. She's also the lead scientist at Common Seas, a group dedicated to reducing ocean and river pollution. The microplastics that we found during this study were mostly microfibers. And these fibers um, come from all forms of textiles. Another new study in the North Atlantic's found a huge mix of plastics in some areas of the ocean, all coming from different parts of the world. This is Emily Penn, mission director of Expedition, a team of researchers is investigating the causes of and solutions to ocean plastic pollution. We also find paint fragments. We find tyre dust. Marine life ingests these tiny broken down pieces of plastic and then they can make their way into our food chain. It reinforces this message of there being no silver bullet solution to tackle the plastics issue. Now on the mouth of the La Plata River in Uruguay, the next step towards a solution's begun. Government delegations are meeting for the first of six summits to hammer out a legally binding treaty by 2024. Some of the measures being considered include a cap or even a ban on new plastic production, setting up a circle economy for reusing plastic items, restricting the export of plastic waste and removing harmful chemicals from plastics. It's estimated that within different plastics there are 10,000 types of chemical additives. Over 2,500 are known to be toxic and harmful, uh, both to humans and other organisms. That was Tony Walker, a professor of environmental studies at the Canadian Dalhousie University. Many scientists say a plastic treaty must hold countries to account, unlike the voluntary model of the Paris Agreement on climate change. We need a transformative shift. Uh, current uh, use and predicted increase in plastic uses is, is, is going to increase. And um, so we need strict binding agreements such as the Plastics Treaty. Still to come on the Sunday 7, the hunt is on for the colossal squid and ancient viruses are coming back from the dead. Great. Right after this. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
You're listening to the Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso, or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. months, engineering firm Rolls-Royce has been busy building something a little different. They're designing a nuclear micro-reactor. It's a new classification of reactor, one the company says could eventually power NASA's planned base on the moon and provide power, heat and propulsion for any future trip to Mars. We are in a new space race. There's a lot of commercial uh, opportunities, but also agencies having aspirations to go to moon, stay there and beyond. Perhaps better known for its engines, Rolls-Royce has spent more than 60 years quietly building the power plan for the UK's fleet of nuclear submarines. They hope this experience will help them compete in the new space race. That's according to engineer Matthew Marriott. There's a lot of commercial uh, opportunities, but also agencies having aspirations to go to moon, to moon, stay there and beyond. Um, but really, in order for everyone to do that, they need power uh, and reliable power. There are power options in space, solar electric being a, a good opportunity. Um, but there are instances where solar isn't a viable option. It can't deliver you the power that you need for space. So this product will enable all of these, uh, these companies to, to realise their ambitions in space. NASA plans to establish a place on the moon as a stepping stone to eventual human expeditions to Mars. Astronauts would go there to learn the skills needed for deep space missions. Sustaining human life and habitat on the moon requires a serious amount of power, which is where products like micro-reactors come into play. Abby Clayton's a director of future programmes at Rolls-Royce. Two years ago, if you'd said to me we'd be looking at designing reactors to go on the moon, I'd have said that you were absolutely barking and it was a crazy idea. We think about Mars is a really, really long way away, so it can take you know up to 18 months effectively to travel to Mars using conventional types of fuels. Uh, if we kind of use the, the power of nuclear to do that, you can probably cut that to around a three-month period uh, to travel to Mars. So actually makes that planet more accessible for us to actually go and explore, you know, make sure that we can do experiments there. But again, also work out, can humans get to Mars? And that's certainly the plan, you know, by 2040 is a target out there to get humans on Mars. Microreactors designed for space will also have plenty of uses on Earth too, says Gary Jones, head of manufacturing innovation. It can be used for disaster relief. So you could actually transport one of these systems in within, you know, short time frame, hours rather than weeks to re-establish a grid um, and then you could have power from a box that would really help disaster relief. You could also replace diesel electric generators to help decarbonise a multitude of applications. Rolls-Royce say they plan to have a prototype operating by the end of 2028. Somewhere in the Antarctic Ocean lives the colossal squid, a creature so rare and mysterious it's never been filmed in its natural habitat. On the other side of the world in Newfoundland, the easternmost part of Canada and the Atlantic region, a team is hoping to be the first. I'm expecting us to be standing there on our, like, looking at the little screen and then just see this, like, nice hooked arm. At the offices of Subsea Imaging, marine scientists Jennifer Herbig and Eugenie Javinson are about to set off on a colossal expedition. So Jenny and I are going to Antarctica 
Antarctica to look for colossal squid. This is a pretty big deal. Yeah, we're really excited. <laughs> yeah. In 2013, scientists famously captured the world's first video of the giant squid. Both the giant and colossal species of the squid are extremely rare, but giant squid have longer tentacles and live around the world. Colossal squid is much heavier, around 500 kilograms, and lives only in the Antarctic. Hi there, world. I'm Matt Mulrennan, a marine scientist and co-founder CEO of Colossal. Matthew Mulrennan has been planning this project for the past seven years. While he's based in sunny California, much of the expertise is coming from icy Canada. Speaking to Canada's CBC News, Matthew explains what it would mean to capture this colossal creature on video. If finding the giant squid was like landing on the moon, finding colossal squid is like landing on Mars. The challenge is colossal in itself, but if they can get a glimpse of the squid, the reward would be too. think about melting ice and climate change, rising sea levels is typically the primary concern. Now we've got a different worry altogether, the release of dangerous ancient microbes. We've already witnessed the horrors of what one virus can do, but what would happen if the world came face to face with an even deadlier strain of an unknown virus? Well, sorry to say it, but that could be on the cards. Scientists have found 13 ancient viruses which until recently have been trapped in permafrost for thousands of years. One of the viruses has remained infectious after almost 49,000 years trapped there and researchers are saying ice continues to melt and release organic matter. Sarah Pitts, a microbiologist at the University of Brighton, and explained to WION News how these viruses, now commonly known as zombie viruses, are coming back to life. Because the permafrost is, is like a giant deep freezer, a very low temperature deep freezer, viruses can survive under those conditions. We keep them in the laboratory at minus 80 degrees and, and they stay um such that we can grow them again at once we thaw them out and viruses do need to live in organic material such as an animal that died having still carrying that infection and if that happens you know the animal is preserved intact and so all any infectious agents that might be inside it so as everything starts to thaw out the, because they've been perfectly preserved, all the, the cells inside the animal, the tissues inside the animal start to um, revive and the viruses inside them could also can also revive at the same time. Knowing these viruses could potentially be revived, the fear is they could infect other organisms and start to spread before we even know how to spot them. If they're viruses which are thousands of years old, they might be ones that we're not particularly familiar with. They might be closely related to something that we have around now, but, but it won't be something that we necessarily know. So if animals or even human beings get infected with those viruses, they we might not recognise the symptoms. And we also might not have the diagnostic tests ready to go quite soon enough. And then that's how things spread so rapidly. As you were mentioning there, we've just... We've while we're still in the experience of COVID, it spread so rapidly because people didn't necessarily know the symptoms were different from flu or a cold in good time. And then it took us a little while to actually develop the diagnostic tests. We did a really good job with coronavirus because it is closely related to it, the SARS um, COVID 2 coronavirus was closely related to SARS 1 and other sorts of common cold viruses. So we had a bit of a head start from a diagnostic point of view. Whereas if they're sort of thousands of years old and we don't know anything about them, it will take us a bit longer to get the diagnostic tests. And that means the virus could spread before we even know it's there. And on top of that, 
climate change is posing dangers other scientists haven't yet figured out. Well, in the same way that we don't really know what's going to happen as the climate across the world changes, where um, things becoming um, things thawing out, which might have infectious agents inside them, there's also a potential risk for things like anthrax, because the spores from that's caused by a, a bacteria that produces these very very resistant spores, and again they can be inside animal skins and the bodies of humans who've been infected with it, and they potentially survive um, for a very long time and and very, very well under sort of um, frozen conditions or just being deeply buried in the earth, actually. And another thing that can happen is things like mosquitoes perhaps change their habits and their habitat and they might actually start as as with global warming as the temperature warms up everywhere and it also is more wet that the thing with um, global warming is as we've all noticed there's a lot more rain and that's very good for mosquitoes they could potentially i'm not saying they will but they could potentially spread around the world and take things like i don't know zika virus or malaria to countries that didn't previously have them because they don't have the right species of mosquito that could all happen it's all in theory but it's something that we do need to be aware of. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris.